Welcome back, everybody, to Prescribing Truth. I'm Jamal Bandy. If this is your first time listening to me or if you happen to like this content, please remember to subscribe and hit that notification bell on the side so you can be notified when I have new content. I'm also available on different vo- uh, podcast apps, including iTunes, Stitch Radio, and Google Play. Just search for Prescribe Truth. I would like for you to leave me some reviews and whatnot. Let me know what you think about the show, your criticisms and whatnot. Whether good or bad, I really appreciate the feedback. As long as it's constructive, you know what I'm saying? I really appreciate that. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so by email, emailing me at prescribed.truth at gmail.com or calling me at 801-980-6333. You can also support the show financially by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash prescribed truth. It's in the description as well as scrolling across the bottom of the screen there. We're building up a nice little community uh, on, on Patreon. I'm really thankful for that. Uh, we have a good time on the, on the post show. Um, it's great. You know, I'm just really enjoying that. And so um, please join us on there. I appreciate your support. If not, I appreciate your prayers. Um, we're going to continue today. As you see in the title, we're reviewing the works of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, this is part two. We left off at a sermon that he did um, dealing with, can a Christian be a communist? You know, and so um, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna finish that up. And so just a recap, a brief recap before we get into anything else. Um, Martin Luther King made it very clear that a Christian should not be a communist. If you're a Christian and you hold to communism, um, then you're wrong. You're in error. But there's a nuance to that. And we have to bring that out because we have to be honest with what we see. And the nuance in that is that it's not so much as the communist, um, the, the structure, the structure of communism was wrong. But it was the it was how it was to be brought about which made it wrong. So Martin argued that um, the, the the tactics that the people were using for communism uh, was wrong. They was willing to use lying, cheating, um, violence, stealing, whatever it is they had to do in order to make communism a reality. And Martin Luther King disagreed with that. He was against that. He said, "If you're a Christian, you should not even hold to that." But the end. Of communism is what Martin Luther King agrees with. Um, he does. He did believe that, um, as far as these writings go, we're looking at. He did believe that America should exist with no second-class citizens. That means everybody basically earns on the same levels, um, equal distribution of wealth. And, you know, that's. I mean, that's a communist, you know, perspective. Now it's interesting to me that Eric Mason, on a video a while back, I um, on an interview. Um, he made it clear that he said that he's not pushing for equal distribution of wealth, but that everybody could earn on the same levels, and they, which basically is another nice way of saying equal distribution of wealth, um, which you could deny it all day long, but that's just the, that's just the reality of it. And so Martin Luther King, he pushed for the same thing. He believed the same thing, that wealth should be distributed equally. That shouldn't be. That should not be second class citizens. And we're going to look at some. Um, so a speech of his. Hopefully we get to that. And um, we're going to finish this sermon. Now, the whole thing, just to bring you back, for those of you who may be joining who's late on this conversation, the whole thing about this is there was a question that was posed to me as to why there are Christians who reject Martin Luther King as far as being a Christian and someone we should look to from a Christian, from a Christian point of view or Christian worldview versus those like Martin Luther, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and uh, George Whitfield. So we haven't gotten to... Edwards, Whitfield, or Luther yet. Like, we haven't gotten there yet. We dealt with Martin Luther King first because the question is, why not Martin? And so we're looking at this. And then when we finish with Martin Luther King, we're going to look into Martin Luther 
George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. So that is a trajectory that we're heading on. But it's very interesting as I'm doing this um, look in this study and his research into Martin Luther King's research and his writings. Um, I'm getting very intrigued. I, I, could, I probably could do like I probably could do a series of videos just on Martin Luther King alone and his stance, you know, because he's very, he's very nuanced. But he means what he says and he says what he means. And um, and it's very interesting. Just the things that are coming out here, even when it comes to his motivation behind the civil rights movement in the way that he did it. The reason why he chose a nonviolent approach versus a violent approach, as some others would have. I mean, all of that was very interesting to me, and I thought it was very good to bring out. And I, I kind of want to look into all that, guys. Like, I want to share that with you all. I want to look into uh, his trip to India and how that uh, inspired him in that way and all that kind of good stuff. And, and what does that mean for him as a Christian and whatnot? Like, what should we draw from that and what should we kind of leave where it is? Um, but I don't know if we have the time for it. I really don't know. But um, I know we ain't gonna have the time. I'll keep rambling along like this. So um, let's go ahead and jump into um, this uh, the ending of the sermon and finish it out, and then we'll go on from there. All right. We'll see where time leaves us. Leaves us. All right. So that should be fair enough. Um, feel free to leave comments as I'm going through this. I won't be able to check it as often, but as I find time, I will check the comments and try to read. If there's any questions or anything like that that's relevant to what we're talking about. All right. So anyway, jumping into it. Now, this is the beginning of it. This is the beginning of the sermon. Um, can a Christian be a communist? And this was in 1962. So just give you a timeline. Um, now, the speech that I wanted to look at is actually two years earlier than this in 1960. So this is 1962. Uh, Martin Luther King would deliver his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. The Civil Rights Act. Of 1964 will be passed somewhat of a year later, and we know Martin Luther King will be assassinated in 1968. So there's some things that's a, that's a, that's some importance in that timeline as far as what we're looking at as far as the mindset then, and how you can hear the similarities of his speech to those of the woke community today, the woke church community today. And interestingly enough, I don't believe I'm just gonna throw this out there. I don't believe that if Martin Luther King Jr. was living today that he would be on the front lines with the woke church community. I really highly doubt that. I think that he would um, stand that things are as, you know, may not be as what he would want them to be, but be content because, you know, he wanted communism. He wanted everybody to have the same, you know, but he pushed against segregation and the woke church community today is segregating. They want to be separate from white brothers and sisters and so on and so forth, have their own things versus bringing it together. And Martin Luther King basically like one people say, hey, the further we get away from integration, the worse things will be. And so, yeah, so I don't think he would really stand with them today as is. But um, but that's that. All right. So let me go ahead and um, get to this and see where we left off at. Now, you probably can't see some of that. Let me bring this out. All right, you should see that. Okay, now if you can't see something, let me know. I'll try to make it where you can where you can read it. All right, where we was at? I want to start. Let's start here. And this may be like a sort of recap, but we'll go through. There's not much more, and this is like uh, ten pages. And up here is like page four. 
All right, so he says, yet we must realize that there is something in communism which challenges us all. So he sees there's something in communism that's actually worth holding on to. Just, want, just kind of a recap a little bit towards the end what we was looking at. Um, he said it was the late Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, that referred to communism as a Christian heresy. I want you to follow me as I go through this other aspect of the message. By this, he meant that communism had laid hold on certain truths which are essential parts of the Christian view of things. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Some went up. Let me make sure it's everything right here with the stream. All right, testing one, two, three. Okay, cool. All right. All right, so he looked at communism as being something that actually pointed out to some truths that are essential parts of the Christian view of things. Notice the key word, essential. So this is not something that's secondary. These are things that are primary. These are things that are important to the Christian view of things. But that it had bound, that it had bound up with them concepts and practices which no Christian can ever accept or profess. So this is talking about how they would use their tactics to bring about this communist change and so on and so forth. All right, so he goes on to talk about that. I'm skipping through it. All right, and then it goes on here. This is important. Uh, make sure you see this. All right, right here. It says, no one can deny that we need to be concerned about social justice. Karl Marx arouses our conscience at this point. Karl Marx was born a Jew in a rabbinic family somewhere along the way as a child. He must have heard his parents reading the words of Amos. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's interesting. This is the same um, uh, text of scripture that uh, Eric Mason uses. Then when he was six years old, his parents became Christians. And somewhere along the, line, along the way, he must have heard them reading over the New Testament. Ye do unto the least of these, ye do it unto me. So with this passionate concern for social justice, Christians are bound to be in accord. All right. So that's that's it. So based on those two passages of scripture, we Christians should be on board with social justice in this way. Now, keep in mind, too, what's going on here in Martin Luther King's day, what he's calling social justice. All right. He's dealing with social justice and from a communist perspective. He's using social justice in the way that it's been defined. Originally, he just doesn't agree with the tactics to get to it. He agrees with the ends. He doesn't agree with the means. That's very important to think about. And he's using the term social justice. All right. Now, people call on Martin Luther King for the MLK 50 and everything else. They look to him as far as, hey, no, he's just, no, he was the one who gives us the example. We should follow A, B, and C. Well, he saw social justice the way that everyone else is seeing it. And we are calling people out on who are denying the definition. All right. He understood social justice to mean exactly what it means. But the interesting thing is, in his day, there were laws that were in place that actually kept African-Americans disparaged. There it was. So this is in 1962. It wouldn't be until two years later, roughly, that there would be um, no more uh, segregation in schools and um, there would be no more discrimination based on uh, race and, and sex and all that kind of stuff like that. That's important. All right. Um, oh, yeah, so with this passion and concern for justice, Christians are bound to be in accord. Such concern is implicit 
in the Christian doctrine of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Christians are always to begin with a bias in favor of a movement which protests against unfair treatment of the poor. But surely Christianity itself is such a protest the Communist Manifesto might express a concern for the poor and the oppressed. But it expresses no greater concern than the Manifesto of Jesus, which opens with the words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And so a passionate concern for social justice must be a concern of the Christian religion. All right. So that's the argument that he makes. Now, keep in mind that passage he, um, he read from Jesus as he was quoting from Isaiah. It's interesting because this is not saying that the poor are supposed to have equal earnings as the oppressors and so on and so forth. You know, it's saying we come to preach good news to the poor. You know, what is the good news? The good news is Jesus Christ. Not that there will be social, um, economic uh, restoration and all that kind of stuff like that. Is that there's good news to be heard, even if you're poor, regardless if you're rich or poor, sick or well. You got there's good news, and the good news is that Jesus Christ, that Messiah has come. All right, so that's that. Uh, let's let's continue on here. All right, I'm gonna try to go where we were. Let's see where we are. Page, I think it was on page six. Yep. So we'll start here. Oh yeah, this is all good. Yeah, so we'll start here. Start at top six. So we must admit that we as Christians have often lagged behind at this point. Slavery could not have existed in the United States for almost 250 years if the church had really taken a stand against it. Segregation could not exist today in the United States if the church took a stand against it. Now, it's interesting, once again, this goes to show a, little bit, a lot in uh, MLK's theology. So, God isn't sovereign in his theology. and sovereign over hearts, over the minds, over the land. Um, people are. And he even said this. this, is his, this is, I'm paraphrasing his own words um, from another um, sermon he did. That God and man both work together to deal with sin in the world. So it's not God who just who does everything. Man does his part. And so with this view, like segregation, slavery, and all this stuff, these things happen because man would not do what he's supposed to do. Not because God may have had it ordained in his plan or that he was sovereign over hearts and he allowed these things to happen. None of those things. It was simply because man didn't do their part and therefore god went finna do his part you know and if you think i'm putting words in his mouth he literally said he used this analogy he said how god deals with sin in the world especially the sin of man is like this and i'm paraphrasing like say you take a test and you get 70 percent right you do 70 percent of the work you get it 70 percent correct you're missing 30 percent well god brings the rest so you bring your very best and God gives the rest. That is how he viewed how sin is dealt with in the world. Man and God both work together. Now, I don't see that in the Bible nowhere. And, you know, but that's what he believes. That's what he teaches. And some of you who don't believe in predestination, election, and all that, you probably would agree with him on that. 
you know, that, you know, man and God both work together for the, the dealing with sin. I don't know. But that's what he held to. Um, so that's that. So now this goes to show into some worldview as to why he would say the things he says here. Slavery would not take place if the church would have stood up, if Christians would have stood up. You know, it wouldn't have happened. Segregation wouldn't have happened if the church would have stood up. So God, you know, God had nothing to do with it. It was all because of men. Um, Mr. Meredith would be in the University of Mississippi right now if the Church of Mississippi had taken its stand against segregation. Uh, the tragic fact, I'm reading from here, tragic fact is that in spite of Mr. Barnett's defiance of the Supreme Court of the land and the moral law of the universe, we haven't heard a single word from the churches of Mississippi. This morning, if we stand at 11 o'clock to sing, In Christ There Is No East or West, we stand in the most segregated hour of America. All right, so this is a common quote that's quoted from people who would um, look to Martin Luther King as far as an example, as far as their stance on social justice. And who's talking about, you know, Sunday morning is the most segregated time uh, in, in this country. So this is what he's saying here. But keep in mind the time that he's in. So, yes, it probably would have been the most segregated moment, time, but that's not the case today. I mean, we have integration now where before it was segregation. But that's how uh, people pull from him. And, you know, and, and to me, I mean, I'm just being honest, y'all. I feel like, honestly, feel like people are ripping him out of context. So it's what he's actually talking about and the time that he's talking about it. You know, the silence that was going on and everything else, you know, just like, hey, this is what was going on at the time. People, you know, in their hearts, you know, whatever reason was apathetic or, or those who did care didn't have a strong enough voice to make change happen and so on and so forth. But either way, God is sovereign through it all. You know, and we say, you say well, that's a cop out and all. It's just the truth. You know, same thing that Joseph realized when he was um, sold into slavery by his brothers and all that stuff. You know, he saw it as God meant it for his good. God allowed it to happen. He, he acknowledged God's sovereignty in all of that. You know, so that's just the truth of the matter. Um, but, yeah, I'm not trying to get on many tangents. I'm trying to get through this. I'm going to go through. Oh, what? So um, now I'll read this this one. It said, oh, we have high blood pressure of creeds and, and anemia of deeds. And this is the, tragi the tragedy facing us today. We must admit that the church has often lagged behind, that the church has too often been an institution serving to crystallize the patterns of the status quo. Oh, we've identified the name of Christ with so many evil things. I heard Mr. Barnett saying the other day that he had to do what he was what he was doing because of the righteousness uh, that had been handed down from God through Jesus Christ. I said to myself, isn't it tragic that we will take the name of, G of Christ, identify it with so many evils of history? Oh, how we've lost Christ. Now, he's referring to um, Mr. Barnett here would, would be a man who would be against who, who called himself a Christian. And was against segreg I mean, integration or ending segregation in a school, I believe. I think he was a principal of school, something like that, over school. And he was against ending segregation um, for that school. And so that's what we're referring to here. And so, yeah, I, I would agree with Martin Luther there. I, I mean, I would agree with Martin Luther King there. Like, yeah, that's messed up. Like, you're a Christian and you're against, you know, saying allowing blacks to, to, to learn and be educated along with whites. Like, that's messed up. So I would agree with him here. That's a real situation, you know. And and then put the name of Christ on, and then for his reason, saying that he's doing it because of the righteousness of Christ. Like, no, that would be a that would be a mischaracterization of the heart of Christ, 
and I would agree with Martin Luther King there. And so anyway, um, go ahead and continue. I just wanted, wanted you to see that. Uh, said, um, hmm, we go here. That this is why Karl Marx one day looked out, and this is why others following him have looked out and decided to say religion is the opiate, opiate of the people. It has too often been the opiate of the people. Too often the churches talk about a future good over yonder and not concerned about the present evil over here. And now that sounds very familiar to what we hear people talk about today. You know, the church is more concerned about, you know, um, the afterlife versus what's going on, the injustices and all that today. You know, but guys, if we be if we be fair and we think about this for a moment, like we're told by Christ, told in the word of God to not build up our treasures here on earth and not to be not to set our minds on things below, but on things above to set our treasures on things in the heavenly places and not on things in the earth. And so if we're looking for our treasures to be built up here. Then we're kind of going against what the word of God says in that way, not saying that, hey, we shouldn't work to try to provide for our families and take our responsibilities as men and women and so on and so forth. But to have our minds set so high to these things where we lose sight of the finished work of Christ and what that means for the life of a believer, then we have gone off course. We've gone off course. And if you're talking about disparities, and keep in mind, Martin Luther King, he does push for communism. He's not, he doesn't push for, um, uh, uh, you know, just people just having the, the right to. Like, yeah, you're going to get the right to. And his time... They didn't have the right to. So it's fair to say in his time, there was no rights given to African-Americans in that way. You said segregation, they were refusing jobs based on the color of their skin and so on and so forth. That was going on then. Today, that's not the case. You know, so he wouldn't stand so much on the same line with the church people today. But back then, that was the case. And so, but he does push for everybody having the same amount of income. And he does push for the government to do something about it. But he doesn't put a lot of trust in the government, but he does look to them to have responsibility in that. And so, um, yeah, everybody should, there should be only one class of citizenship, not middle class, first class, you know, whatever classes. Like, it should be all one class. And so that means everybody earns on the same levels and it's equal distribution of wealth because no one's making so much more than the other that they're in a different class of people. So, yeah. So, you know, he does push for communism here. All right. But he's saying that, hey, this is why Karl Marx looked and said these things. He saw how how this religion, well, in this day, how religion just seems to be looking, looking down on the poor and not really doing anything about it and so on and so forth. Whereas we got to really think about it. Like, is it an injustice that there are those who make more than others and who obtain wealth more than others and so on and so forth? Is that the injustice? Um, you know. I mean, we can talk about somebody being treated unfairly and unjustly and all that stuff like that, but let's define it. Like, what is just and unjust concerning people earning, you know, working for a wage and so on and so forth, and people earning that wage or agreeing to earn that wage, so on and so forth. Like, when I go to a job and they give you a job offer, they let you know how much you're going to make if you come take this job. You take this job, this is how much you're going to make. You can agree to take the job or don't take the job. Now, you know the consequences if you don't take the job. You don't take the job, you don't work. If you don't work, you don't get paid. You don't get paid, you can't pay bills. You know, that's that's just the reality of it. You know, but is that an injustice because they don't pay you the, same, the amount of money that you think you should make? You know, I mean, I mean, I don't know. We can go, I don't try and go into tension with that, but that's just something to think about here. All right. 
So, do, 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 do. okay, so I oh, I tell you this morning, and I believe in immortality. I believe in it firmly and absolutely, but I am tired of people telling me about the hereafter, and they don't tell me about the here. You can't say hereafter without saying here. <laughs> That's right, Martin Luther King. It's all right. It's all right to talk about silver slippers in a symbolic sense over in heaven, but give me some shoes to wear down here. It's all it's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder, but give me some clothes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey over yonder, but I want to see men living in decent homes right here in this world. It's all right to talk about all of these things in terms of a new Jerusalem, but I want to see a new Atlanta, a new New York, a new America, and a new world right here. All right, so this is what he put for. So, okay, let's continue. So this is what we've got to see, that the church has a social gospel. Now, people got mad at, um, <laughs> at MacArthur when he said, yeah, people are preaching a social gospel, preaching a social gospel. And it's like, how dare Martin Luther, how, not Martin Luther, how dare MacArthur talk about we preaching a social gospel? Well, Martin Luther King calls it a social gospel. He does right there. He says it. I don't know. Can you see that? I hope you can see that. Let me see if you can see that. Yep, you should be able to see that. He calls it a social gospel. So, I mean, he, he acknowledges, Martin Luther King acknowledges, acknowledges it for what it is. So he says, the church has, he said, this is what we've got to see, that the church has a social gospel that it must be true to. We must certainly work with individuals and seek to change the soul. That's very important. Now, keep in mind, look what he's saying. Now, this, show, this goes to show in his theology. We must certainly work with individuals and seek to change the soul. Can't change the soul. We can't. We can preach the gospel, but that's not a social gospel. That's the gospel. You know, there's only one gospel, not, not a social gospel, not a non-social gospel, not a racial gospel, not a segregationist gospel, not a whatever gospel you can make to put a prefix on that. Like, there's only one gospel, one good news, and that's the only good news that is given for the salvation of men that has the power of God behind it. That's it, you know? So when you start changing the gospel, then you don't have a gospel. You don't. And you got conclusions like this. We must certainly work with individuals to seek to change the soul. We can't do that. Only God can do that. But Martin Luther King doesn't believe that. He believes that men work together. He believes that men is actually... You know, even though we have like a sin problem, that we actually can do good. You know, we don't have to be born again to do good. We can do good where we are. So he, he believes that. He said, um, well, at this time he believed that. But we've got to deal with these social conditions that corrupt the soul and any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and not concerned about the city government that damns the soul, the economic conditions that corrupt the soul, the slum conditions, the social evils that cripple the soul is a dry, dead, do-nothing religion in need of new blood. Man, it is already spiritually dead. And the only thing I'm certain, I'm certain about, it is a day that it will be dead. We've got to see that we are challenged to have a greater social consciousness in this church. Social consciousness. 
Sounds familiar. Hmm? We must be concerned about the gulf between superfluous, superfluous, I probably butchered that word, uh, superfluous wealth and abject deadening poverty. One does not have to be a communist to be concerned about this. I would say to you this morning that one-tenth of one percent of the population of this nation controls almost 50 percent of the wealth. And I don't mind saying that there's something wrong with that. All right? There's something wrong with that. There's, there's something morally wrong with that percentage. All right? So, yeah. Now, how do you fix that? You have to take from those to give to others, which means you have to, which we have to go against what Martin, Martin Luther King said he's against. He said he's against the, in order to get to this point from stealing and taking and all that stuff like that. So his idea is basically, hey, well, how about we be nice and we don't we take a nonviolent approach and we love you enough that you will be willing to give. You'll be willing to give that to us and not so much as us having to take it. You know, and the government should be involved in somewhat in some in the affairs of that as well. So that's his nonviolent approach to a communist end without using the means. He said, I don't mind saying this morning that too often in capitalism so he's acknowledging communism versus capitalism. We've taken necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. I will never be content. I would never, wait a minute, I will never be content. Well, that, that, that goes against what Paul said in the scriptures. But this is what he said. I will never be content. I will never rest until all of God's children can have the basic necessities of life. I hope he meant all of God's believing children, but that's not what he's talking about. He says all God's children. He believes all everybody in the world is God's children. You know, that's so that's the other issue. Now that's you may say that's a minor thing, but no, it's a it's a minor thing to a bigger theological problem. So you say, why not Martin Luther King? He's the you know, why did they deem him a heretic and everything else? It's stuff like this, but this is not it. This is not the end all be all. This is just a drop in the bucket of a bigger theological problem that he has. You know? And even his worldview behind what he's pushing for is not godly you know he's just saying he doesn't want to do it that way you know but even his pursuit of doing this and his motivation for doing it is wrong like not trying to fight for equal like voting rights for african americans and the fact that there shouldn't be discrimination based on race and all that not talking about any of that martin Luther king does not end there he doesn't end his his fight against um the america in this way um, based on just um, discrimination based on race. He doesn't end it there. The um, fact that we can't vote, he doesn't end it there. Because matter of fact, that the voting bill was passed in 1957, I believe. So like even before this speech, African Americans had the right to vote. You know, So that was, that was done. But there was still segregation and people were still being denied jobs based on race. And so that's not, a, that's not a bad cause to fight for. And so he fought for that. But his goal did not end there. And he makes it clear here. It's not about that. He would not be content. You know, with that percentage being the way it is, he would not be content until that's fixed. He said there's something, something wrong with that. He said, that's true. Never forget that all these fine homes you see represent less than 5% of the Negro population of Atlanta. I'm not concerned about 5% of the Negroes living all right. Living all right. I want to see all of God's children with a decent home and three square meals a day and able to educate their children. God wants this for everybody. And I will never be content as long as somebody over here can make $500,000 a year. And I've met black men and women down in Mississippi who make less than $500 a year. 
something something wrong with that. And I see hungry boys and girls in this nation and other nations and think about the fact that we spend more than a million dollars a day storing surplus food. And I say to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge in the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of people in our nation and this world who go to bed hungry at night. And God has left enough and to spare in this world for all of his children to have the basic necessities of life. All right, so we see talking about hunger in the world and so on and so forth. None of these things are wrong. None of these things are wrong in that self of wanting people not to be poor, wanting people to have and not go hungry and all of that. But to say that it's an injustice because there is poor people around is not necessarily, it's not true. I mean, you have that in the scriptures. It's not deemed a sin. You know, it's not deemed a sin that there are people amongst you who are poor. We're told to give to the poor. We're told that we should look out for the poor and so on and so forth. But now in the expense of taking from others, you know, and calling it an injustice because somebody happens to make more. If you want to deal with somebody's heart as far as being able to give more, stuff like that, you, you have to change the heart, which means you have to give the gospel and hope the spirit convicts in that way. But that's what the, that's what the spirit convicts of, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So is it the sin that the person have and another person doesn't? No. It's a sin when a person covets. It's a sin when a person is, is selfish. You know, and that's when it's that's when it's sin. Not just the fact that they have and others don't. You know, I mean, you know, just on a basic level there. All right, so let's um let's continue. Now we're getting so now if we go into the economy of it, he says there is another thing Marx reveals the danger of the profit motive as a sole basis for an economic system. We must heed this challenge. So, so this is what he says. There is another thing Marx reveals the danger. There's another thing Marx reveals the danger of the profit motive as a sole basis for an economic system. So it shouldn't be on a profit margin. You know we must heed this challenge. I'm afraid that there are too many people in America. Concerned about making a living rather than making a life. I'm afraid this morning there are too many medical doctors concerned about making a big salary and getting a big home and a fine car than there are about healing the sick bodies of men. I'm afraid that there are too many school teachers in America more concerned about the check that comes at the first of the month than introducing their students to the great and exhaustible treasures of knowledge and loving them and watching them grow. I'm afraid that there are too many preachers in the pulpit more concerned about their anniversaries than they are about saving the souls of man. I'm afraid, my friends, that we are too are prone to judge the success of our profession by the size of the wheelbase of our automobiles rather than the size of our service to humanity. Something is telling us today that there is something more than making a lot of money. We must make money to live. But we must always remember that money is just an ingredient in the objective which we seek in life. And we don't see that. And if we don't see that, we'll make money making an end rather than a means. Jesus said, I know you need it. I know you need money. I know you have need of clothes. I know you need a car to ride in. I know you need a home to live in and to sleep in. I know that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, seek ye first righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. And this is what 
we must do. Now you say at that point, he's like, well, see, Jamal, he's he right there. He's 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 quoting Jesus. He's 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 looking to do what Jesus said about seek ye first the kingdom of right kingdom of heaven and all his righteousness and all these things to be added to you. Like, why why do people reject him? Well, keep in mind, I mean, you can quote scripture all day long, but is he talking about the right Jesus? Which Jesus is he talking about? I mean, he, he's reading from the scripture. Obviously, he got that from the scripture text. But is it is that the Jesus that he actually worships, the one of scripture? And the answer to that is no. You know, so I mean, yeah, so that's no. It's like Joe Witness, they have that scripture too. But the answer is still no. They worship the wrong Jesus. Same thing with the Mormons. The wrong Jesus. So they have a false, end up having a false gospel, which he has as well. Anyway, how, how, how much longer I have on this paper? All right, so we're about towards the end. All right, so he goes on to talk about, I'm just going to paraphrase. Now, you can look this up. I put the link should still be in the description if you want to read the rest of this. <clears throat> But basically, he goes on to talk about how um, <laughs> that basically the Christian witness is the fact that this stuff should be changing. Like, we should be doing something about this. You know, and this is what people are saying in the woke community today, the woke church community today. You know what I'm saying? Our witness as Christians is shot because we're not doing these things. Because we're not doing these things, it's, it's shot. Our witness is messed up in the communities and so on and so forth. But if we make these changes, then we'll, you know, we have a better witness. Matter of fact, uh, he will go. He will use strong language to talk about how you can. It's hard to say you even following Christ fully if you're not pushing for social justice in this way. You know, keep in mind, he's, the end is not that segregation is ended. The end is not that there's racial discrimination that's ended. The end is that everybody is earning the same thing. Remember, he's noticing. He's saying that it's wrong, not the fact that people can't get a job because of the color of their skin. Now, he does mention that elsewhere, but in this argument, he's saying that if there's somebody over here making five hundred dollars a year. And somebody making $500,000 a year, that's something wrong. Why can it be that these people, they have a good business plan. They made it work. These people just had a, something happen in their life. It's a circumstance, what case may be, they weren't able to get to that point. But the fact that they don't make $500,000 like this person over here is not an injustice. And even though, so that is a disparity, but that doesn't mean it's an injustice. All right? So, yeah, let's look, at these, let's look at some of these comments before I go to the next part real quick. All right, so, um, right, right, so Jesus is the new blood. Amen, Ivan. Uh, sounds heretical to me, yep. Hmm, never be content. Sounds disturbing. Exactly. It's the same thing I, I heard when I, when I, same thing I thought when I read it. Uh, it's like, never be content. Like, Paul said, be content with whatever state you find yourself in. Like, we should be content. You know, now we're talking about going against injustices. Now, in his day, there were actual injustices, but in his uh, speech here, in his sermon here, he's not just talking about things that are actually unjust. He's he's calling injustice injustice basically somebody making more than someone else. Like um, Angel Heaven said, Eric Mason said the same thing. You know, and it is and it is twisted. You know, so how many places has he been? I have no idea, but obviously. He understands the whole concept of the world based on where he is, you know, and he probably have I me. Mean, he doesn't traveling, you know, he probably seen poor here and poor there and so on and so forth. But once again, because there are poor people doesn't mean that there's an injustice. Now, people are poor for different reasons. You know, there's some people who are poor because of bad decisions they made. There are some people who are poor because of bad decisions their families have made. I mean, there's different reasons for that. There's different nuances to that. No, not everybody's poor just because somebody's just been done wrong. That's not the case. You know, and it's pushed for equal class citizenship. You know, saying like that's, you know, that's communism, man. 
know what I'm saying? So, yeah. So, anyway, let's, um, real quick, I, I, we, we're making good time. I'm, I've only been on 40 minutes so far. This, this is still good. You know, I'm, in about an hour, I'll probably end up cutting it. But I'm going to look at this. I want to show y'all this real quick. Uh, just, uh, no, we're still talking about why not Martin Luther King. Let me see if I still got it saved. Okay. Let me see if, you, if y'all be able to see this. All right. What happened to hell? Now, so this is goes to show his idea of hell here. All right, so this is important. Now, this was 1961. So this is a year before the speech we just read, a year after the um, speech that I want to look at. So, you know, this was this is what he his view of hell. I'm going to zoom this up so you, so you can see it better. Okay. All right, so it says, um, said Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Baptist Atlanta, says the man who has had his share of hell on earth. I do not believe in hell as a place of a literal burning fire. Hell, to me, is a condition of being out of fellowship with God. It is man's refusal to accept the grace of God. It is a state in which the individual continues to experience the frustrations, contradictions, and agonies of earthly life. Hell is as real as absolute loneliness and isolation. All right, so that's something he said. It says, on November 20th of 1960, Ebony uh, Managing Editor Arabelle Thompson conducted a telephone interview with King on current opinions regarding hell and published his response in an article in the magazine's January 1961 issue. All right, so that's where this comes from. So that's just a little a little tidbit of our just thought on hell. Now there is a, um, a sermon that he talks about more getting into as far as what hell is and so on and so forth. I don't think I have it in the queue as far as pulling up. No, I don't. All right, but that was something he went more in depth as far as his understanding of God and man in that way. Um, so, yeah, given his whole theological. A theological perspective, how God and man both work together for salvation, then, you know, I mean, it, it, it sees he does believe that basically we're suffering hell on earth. You know, basically kind of, they kind of just die, you cease to exist. You know, that's his, I, that's his idea. There's no, no um, eternal torment and all that kind of stuff like that. He said he doesn't believe God is God who would do something like that. You know, it would not just torture you for an eternity. So will I do um, a session on Michael Mix as well. I don't know. And the reason why I probably won't, I don't probably reason why I won't do one on Michael Mix is because I don't think anybody would disagree that he was both theologically off, um, theologically unsound and practically unsound. Now, people, some people do look into him as far as what he was dealing with at the time, but his methods, you know, um, there there won't be an argument amongst Christians there. Um, the fact that he was a nation of Islam until towards the end of his life. Uh, before he was, before he too was assassinated, um, you know, then he changed his views. But that didn't, he he didn't change his views to become a Christian. He just stopped. He stopped being Nation of Islam and and tried to go into straight Islam. Um, so I don't know. Uh, we'll see. So, but um, yeah, because most the reason why I'm even doing Martin Luther King right now is because of the question that was posed as to why Christians reject Martin Luther King as a Christian, you know, and hold to others. 
You know, so we want to look at the heresy. Now, there'll be no question about Malcolm X. There's no question that he wasn't a Christian. You know, but Martin Luther King is seen to be a Christian. You know, he's portrayed to us in the media and on in the schools, Reverend Doctor. I mean, Doctor Martin Luther King Jr. So he's a you know they'll see him as a Christian in the public eye, which basically I mean he claimed to be a Christian himself. But when you look at the teachings of Christ and what he actually taught and believed, they contradict, and so therefore we're bringing it out. So yeah, that's so that's what that's about here. So um, real quick, as I got um, about 10 minutes left, I want to look at this, uh, let's see this article, this speech that he did on the rising tide of racial consciousness. Now, this is interesting. This is going to be interesting because as, in reading this, this was in 1960. So this, is, so this is before the other two things we just looked at a couple years before. And keep in mind, this is four years prior to, around four years prior to the um, passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which ended segregation um, and discrimination among, you know, because of race. And it's interesting, the things that he says here really lets me know that he would not agree with what people are pushing for in the woke church today. Not, not in the same sense. He wouldn't be content, as he said, he'd never be content. So no, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be content, but he would not be standing side by side the Eric Masons of today. He wouldn't. And the Jamar Tisbees of today and so on and so forth. He he wouldn't be. So um let me see what part I want to get to real quick. I want to make this quick. So I'm gonna start here at this paragraph. Bring it so y'all can see right here. So I have been asked to speak this evening from the subject, the rising tide of racial consciousness. While I feel that a social scientist would be much more competent to interpret the emotions, the economics, and the politics that have produced the tide of racial pride and self-consciousness sweeping through the, ne the Negro group, I will seek to bring my limited insights to bear on this important theme. All right. So now let's, let's look at this before we can go further. You, know, you make it read on while I'm talking right now. But he's going to go into saying how is it that right now in his day in 1960, that there are black men and women who are actually feeling better about themselves. They're not feeling like they're the victim. They're actually taking strides to be better in society. They're doing things. They're working. They're pushing forward regardless of the discrimination, regardless of the, of the oppression. They're doing what they do. And they're becoming more conscious of themselves as far as it's more greater sense of pride, self-pride, and self-dignity. So this is what he's talking about here. This, this is what the speech is about. And he's giving factors that he's going to give factors as to why he believes this is taking place. Now, there's no giving, no credit given to the Lord at this point, you know, but I'm not going to hold it against him here. But I want you to see the language that's given here, that this is this is a couple years before he gave that speech we read and, and about can a Christian be a communist and all that stuff like that. So even through all of that, Martin Luther King in this day believed that we're that African-Americans are actually coming up, that they're not where they need to be. They're not where they should be right now. America's not where it needs to be right now, but they are still coming up. So I would think that based on what he says here, what he says here, that if he was alive today, he'll be looking at black people today who are woke, calling themselves woke Christians as if they were crybabies. This is like, what? You're complaining about this? Okay. All right. All right. Yeah, I'm not content because, you know, everybody's not making the same amount of money, but Really, y'all complaining about this is, you know, so because economy, you know, this injustice that people are saying, especially in the church. 
So let's let's look into this. We are all familiar. I'm starting this second paragraph. We are all familiar with the historical circumstances and psychological conditions that gave many Negroes a sense of inferiority. From from 1619 through 1862, the Negro was forced to live through the long night of slavery. He was little more than a depersonalized cog and a vast plantation machine. After slavery ended, the Negro found himself shackled with the cruel chains of segregation. So, let's look at this real quick. Are we enslaved today? No. Are we segregated today? No. Are are they segregated there in 1960? Yes. So, keep that in mind when we think about the progress we have made as a nation. You know, we don't want to get nobody credit. Nowhere. Anyway, let's look at this. Living with these conditions, many Negroes lost faith in themselves and came to feel that perhaps they were less than human. But as the years unfolded, something happened to the Negro. He began to look at himself in a new light. He came to feel a new sense of somebodiness. He's starting to feel like he's somebody. Now, this goes, I heard um, Vody Bakum say this one time, how back then in, in this era, blacks were like the strongest ever compared to what we have today. Like right now, you see, most blacks are mostly whining. They are complaining and just, just whiners. But back here, even though they had the oppression, though all this was against them, they were strong. They were strong. You know, there's something to say about that. How is it that they had more against them back then and they were stronger? We have less against us today and we're weaker. I don't understand that. Somebody explain it to me, please. He says, what are the factors that have led to this new sense of dignity and self-respect of the part of the Negro? First, we must mention the population shift from rural to urban life. For many years, the vast majority of Negroes were isolated on the rural plantation. They had very little contact with the world outside of their geographical um, boundaries. But gradually, circumstances made it possible and necessary for them to migrate to new and larger centers. The spread of the automobile the Great Depression, and the social upheavals of the two world wars. These new contacts led to a broadened outlook. These new levels of communication brought new and different attitudes. A second factor that has caused the Negro's new self-consciousness has been his rapid educational advance. Wait a minute. (laughs) There was educational advance in the 1960s? Well, I know we got some advance today. I know I think Martin Luther King would be very pleased with the educational advance of African Americans today. You know, where now we got people saying today in the woke church movement that that people are not being educated. You know what I'm saying? Like, really? <laughs> come on, man. Like, come on, man. This is before segregate this is before the end of segregation he's writing this. All right, let's let's go on. Over the years, there have been a steady decline of crippling illiteracy. So that means black people actually learning to read now. They're, you know what I'm saying? People are reading more, learning more. At emancipation, only 5% of the Negroes were literate. Today, in 1960, more than 95% are literate. He says that's a, that's a blessing. He says that's a good thing. There's an increase in how Negroes are. Constant streams of Negro students are finishing colleges and universities every year. More than 1,600 Negroes have received the highest academic degree bestowed by an American university. Huh. It seems to me that black people actually did better in school before positive discrimination. Hmm. Hmm. You said, Jamal, what is positive discrimination? That's that thing in the system where, you know, you can, you know, you're, like, they have to bring you on because you're black. 
you know, affirmative action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems that there was actually a higher graduation rate before affirmative action. How about that? More than 1,600 Negroes have received the highest academic degree bestowed by the American University. That was before segregation ended. Interesting. These educational advances have naturally broadened his thinking. They have given the Negro not only a larger view of the world, but also a larger view of himself. Now, whether that's a bad or good thing, you know, given where you stand theologically, that's, you know, that's up to you. But here I'm seeing that he's actually noticing some good things that's actually going on in this day of oppression. A fourth factor that brought about the new sense of pride in the Negro was the Supreme Court's decision outlawing segregation in the public schools. For all men of goodwill, May 16, 1954, came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of enforced segregation. So, 1954, segregation ended in schools. Check this out. 1954, segregation ended in schools. And he's writing this in 1960. So, six years, in a six-year span, he's noticing a rise, an increase in education, in literacy, and even with the, dealing with the population of blacks as a whole being a lot better, being a lot better since that change. So now that was an injustice. Segregation is an injustice. You know, dividing them, that's an injustice. That, that's anti-Christ. You know, so, so it's like that was passed, that ended that, and we see a good thing. Huh, interesting. In simple, eloquent, and unequivocal language, the court affirmed that separate but equal facilities are inherently unequal. And that to segregate a child on the basis of his race is to deny that child equal protection of the law. This decision brought hope to millions of disinherited Negroes who had formerly dared only to dream of freedom, like an exit sign that suddenly appeared to one who had walked through a long and desolate corridor. This decision came as a way out of the darkness of segregation. It served to transform the fatigue of despair into the buoyancy of hope and further enhanced it further enhanced the Negro's sense of dignity. Wow. Praise God. 19, 1954. That, that was good. That was good for that. That was good. A fifth factor that has accounted for the new sense of dignity on the part of the Negro has been the awareness that his struggle for freedom is a part of a worldwide struggle. He has watched developments in Asia and Africa with rapt attention on these vast prodigious, prodigious continents dwell two-thirds of the world's people. For years, they were exploited economically, dominated politically, segregated, and humiliated by foreign powers. But there comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression, so the wind of change began blowing in Asia and Africa. And what a mighty wind it is. Fourteen years ago, the British Empire had under, the domi- uh, had under her denom- uh, domination more than 600 million people in Asia and Africa, but that number will be reduced to less than 40 million after Nigeria received her independence a few days from now. 30 years ago, there were only three independent countries in the whole Africa, Liberia, Ethiopia, and South Africa. By 1962, there may be as many as 30 independent nations in Africa. These rapid changes have naturally influenced the thinking of the American Negro. He knows that his struggle for human, for human dignity is not an isolated event. It is a drama being played on the stage of the world with spectators and supporters from every continent. Hmm. Let's see. Let's let's look at something else here. 
Okay, now this is part of getting to more dealing with more communism talk. Said this growing self-respect has inspired the Negro with a new determination to struggle and sacrifice until first-class citizenship becomes a reality. So that's what he's that's what he's pushing for. All right, so yeah, you may have all this this good stuff going on, but we're going to keep struggling. We're going to keep sacrificing until this is reached, until we get this. This is at bottom the meaning of what it what is happening in the South today. Whether it is manifested in nine brave children of Little Rock walking through jeering and hostile mobs or 50,000 people of Montgomery, Alabama substituting tired feet or tired souls and walking the streets of that city for 381 days. Or thousands of courageous students electrifying the nation by quietly and nonviolently sitting at lunch uh, sitting at lunch counters and have that have been closed to them because of the color of their skin. The motivation is always the same. The Negro would rather suffer indignity than accept segregation and humiliation. This new determination on the part of the Negro has not been welcomed by some segments of the nation's population. In some instances, it has collided with tenacious and determined resistance. This resistance has risen at times to uh, ominous proportions. A few states have reacted in open defiance. The legislative halls of the South ring loud with such words as interposition and nullification. Many public officials are going to the absurd and fanatical extreme of closing the schools rather than to comply with the law of the land. So this would be what evil hearts were doing. They would rather close schools than have, than have integration. Hmm. Now he goes and say in his next paragraph how this this right here this resistance brought about the you know, the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Now keep in mind this actually started from a de- uh, Democratic Party. If you actually do research on the Civil Rights Act, it was actually the Democratic Party that was against the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 57, so on and so forth. It was against that, you know. So why black people vote Democrat today? I do not understand because that was always a view. Now you may say, well, you know, who vote Republican? What going to be? I mean, you choose not to trust any of it. You know, I don't, I don't trust anyone that's going to tell lies just to get the vote. You know what I'm saying? But still, you know, I, my parents <laughs> raised me on saying, if you're going to vote anything, vote Democrat. Because they for black people. Well, through history shows us that's not the case. It's not the case at all. Hold on. What's up, buddy? What's up? Hmm? Don't do the bathroom. Don't do the bathroom. Kids. All right. So we go here. Mm. Say, so we'll see the part where I'm, see what I'm looking at here. Oh, okay, here we go. I'm probably going to end it after here, kind of going over my time. Said, but after saying this, I would like to make it clear that our primary reason for bringing an end to racial discrimination in America must not be the communist challenge. All right. So he's pushing for communism. But notice he's saying this is not the primary reason. You know, saying the primary reason for bringing an end to racial discrimination in America is not so everybody can earn on the same level. So he's saying, hey, we want this, but this is not the reason why we want to end discrimination. All right. Nor must it be merely to appeal to Asian and African peoples. The primary reason for our uprooting ra- racial discrimination from our society is that it is morally wrong. And amen. Amen. 
It is a cancerous disease that prevents us from realizing the sublime principles of our Judeo-Christian tradition. Racial discrimination substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship. It relegates persons to the status of things. Whenever racial discrimination exists, it is a tragic expression of man's spiritual um, degeneracy and moral bankruptcy. Therefore, it must be removed not merely because it, because it is diplomatically expedient, but because it is morally compelling. Alright. So, this, this right here. Of course, there is need for a strong and aggressive leadership from the federal government. Because he asked, the question is given. Given this appraisal of the situation, what can be done? Of course, this, there, is a need, um, there is a need for strong and aggressive leadership from the federal government. So far, only the judicial branch of government has rendered strong leadership. The executive and legislative branches have um, all too often been engaged in a conspiracy of silence and apathy. There must be a determined effort to arouse our government out of this apathetic slumber. In the past, apathy was a moral failure. Today is a form of moral and political suicide. All right, so that's just, so he's, he looks for the government to take part, you know, to, to handle this. All right. Oh, man. Uh, do, 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 do. See something else here. I'm trying to read this whole thing. Oh, okay, here we go. So I'm going to read this last thing here, and we're, we're going to end it. All right, so it says, in the, in the final analysis of first-class citizenship, if, if, uh, if citizenship is to become a reality for the Negro, he must assume the primary responsibility of making it so. The Negro must, be, uh, must not be victimized with the delusion of thinking that others should be more concerned than himself about his citizenship rights. Neither the white liberal nor the federal government will pass out the Negro's rights on a silver platter. In this period of social change, the Negro must work on two fronts. On the one hand, we must continue to break down the barrier of segregation. We must resist all forms of racial injustice. This resistance must always be on the highest level of dignity and discipline. It must never um, degenerate to the crippling level of violence. There is another way, a way as old as the insights of Jesus of Nazareth and as modern as the methods of Mahatma Gandhi. It is a way not for the weak and cowardly, but for the strong and courageous. It has been variously called passive resistance, nonviolent resistance, or simply Christian love. It is my great hope that as the Negro plunges deeper into the quest for freedom, he will plunge deeper into the philosophy of nonviolence. As a race, we must work passionately and unrelentingly for first-class citizenship. So that's what he says. Not for just desegregation, not just for uh, taking away discrimination, but as a race, we must work passionately and unrelentingly for first-class citizenship. But we must never use second-class methods to gain it. Communism, folks. Communism. And he, he's not shy in admitting that. He's not shy in that. You know, he's not. But today's people who are claiming they want social justice and everything else, they're denying that. You know, they want to they redefine terms and everything else. But here, Martin Luther King, he agrees with you all. But he actually calls it what it is. It's social, he calls it social justice. And he, gives, he, he actually defines it the way it's meant to be defined. 
using Karl Marx as an example. He's saying he, he noticed when I read his other his other sermon, he never said that Karl Marx was wrong in the end. He just said that he was that not Karl Marx, but the um the guy who was with him, Ingalls, was wrong in the means. But the ends were actually a good thing and something that a Christian should work towards, and it's essential to our thinking of things. He says, our aim must not to be to defeat or humiliate a white man, but to win his friendship and understanding. Now, this, this is why I believe that Martin Luther King would not stand with the social justice warriors of today, you know, especially African-American ones, the woke church community, because this is what he says. Our aim must not to be to defeat or humiliate the white man, which that's not what they're saying. They're, the, those today are not trying to humiliate the white man. So don't take me out of context here. But to win his friendship and understanding, we must never become bitter, which people are becoming bitter. That's one thing. We should never become bitter, nor should we succumb to the temptation of using violence in the struggle. For if this happens, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness and our chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. Now you say, well, I'm not just about violence and all that stuff like that, but keep in mind too, Martin Luther King, he was against segregation at all costs. So it means like, even for those today who are on the social justice side of things who say, well, we should have our own black conferences and our own black this and our own black that, you're pushing for segregation, the very thing that Martin Luther King fought against. You know, keep in mind, he said it wasn't just because of communism. Like, he felt like all people should not be segregated. Let me see here. Um, da, 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 da. Uh, all right. He used to talk about Mahatma Gandhi there as far as his example. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot here. I'm not going to get into it all tonight. But anyway, that, that's 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 what I'm going to do. There's a lot in there. But um, he talks about Muhammad Gandhi being the example as far as when he took his stance. And if you look into his other per, other works, I mean, he looks he looks up to Muhammad Gandhi um, a lot. You know, um, you see, look at, I haven't even looked at the comments in a while. He said... Um, some good stuff. Appreciate that. That's black on black crimes too. Did we lose video picture? Okay, so is there y'all not seeing the picture? I'm seeing it live. Let me know. Did we lose video picture? The verbal life. What's up, brother? Edwin. What's up? All right. So yeah, that, y'all. That there's a lot in that paper, man. I'm already going over an hour. No pick last 15 minutes. Huh. Wow. I'm about to look at that. Sorry about that. If there was a glitch. Guess that's a, that's my um thing. Let me know. I've been on too long, I guess. But um let's let's go back here. Alright. Yeah, so that's that's all y'all. I mean that was that was a lot in that and I probably got tongue tied a lot trying to read all of that. But the end, if, 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 if take anything away from this, I want you to be able to see that Martin Luther King Jr. was reject, is rejected from Christians by Christians because he was a heretic. Simply put, he was a heretic. He didn't believe in the doctrine of hell. He believed that basically 
Um, man just basically just separated from God. They're just lonely, you know, they're tough for hell on earth. But there's no literal hell. He, they, so that's heresy. He didn't believe that Jesus was, was born of the Virgin Mary. Heresy. He didn't believe Jesus was actually the God man. Heresy. You know what I'm saying? Like, all, these are essential truths to the Christian faith. You know, and so, and he believed that uh, God and man both work together to deal with sin in the world, which nowhere in scripture you'll find that. But that's what he believed because he didn't believe that basically God, like man, just, just don't do nothing. He, he totally was against the idea of God's sovereignty in, in the hearts of men, you know, and he was well learned. People make the excuse that he didn't have the right schools and the right teaching and training and all that. No, man, he had a Bible. and He researched. That man was smart. He was intelligent. And I'm not going to take that away from him because I don't agree with his theology. He was smart. You know, he's very intelligent. You know, it's just that he was intelligently wrong in his theology. You know what I'm saying? So we have, to, we, have to get, we have to call it what it is. So this is why he's rejected. And this is why it was an error on the part of those who held the MLK 50 conference in his honor as if he was a Christian. You know, saying he was a believer and everything else. Like, no. And all because he did good deeds. And, but you don't know the worldview behind his deeds. The worldview behind his deeds was anti-Christian. I mean, come on now. You know what I'm saying? So this is the motivation behind what he was doing was communism. You know, he just didn't want to do it the way that others were going to do it. But he, he didn't believe that people should have, he thought it was an injustice that people had and other people didn't. Disparities have always existed. Always. You know, even, even in Christ, there are disparities. There are. You know, no one's called to be on, called to be on equal footing or equal earning when it comes to even being in Christ. You know what I'm saying? It's not the case. You know, even, even in heaven, there are levels. You have the apostles who are higher than us. I mean, they're going to judge us. You know what I'm saying? We're, they're going to be sitting on them. They're going to have, a, they're going to have their own seats. Where are we going to be? We're going to get to heaven and be like, hey, I deserve a seat with Paul. I deserve a seat like Paul got. I deserve a seat like Peter got. None of us are going to be doing that. But there, there's levels. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's just the way things are. You know, and so this is why we don't build our treasure up on heaven. I mean, on earth, we build it up in heaven. <laughs> don't y'all, don't y'all, don't y'all take that um, that quote of mine and just and misplace it. You know what I was trying to say. Like we don't build our treasures up on earth. We build it up in heaven. All right. And so yeah, this is why Martin Luther King's rejected. Um, he he did look for he did look into communism. This is why a lot of things that Eric Mason them are saying today echoes what Martin Luther King was teaching and so on and so forth. And so hey. That's that's just what it is. The same language, social justice, social gospel, and all that kind of good stuff. All of that, the same as what's going on today. The difference of it is, is that Martin Luther King was probably more on point in what he was saying, dealing in that time, because there was actually laws in place that kept black people down. Whereas today, we have a lot more freedom. It's a lot more better. And if he lived today, he would acknowledge that too. If he could acknowledge the, the, the incline, of of the dignity of African American people in the in 1960, think about how he could recognize it in 2019. Come on now, he he wouldn't be with y'all on that. He wouldn't, you know. So and the fact that people are using his language from that time to justify their misapplication of scripture and all that today is wrong. It's wrong. But anyway, that's my enough of my tangents. I hope this has been helpful for you all. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. Leave a comment. Let me know what you think about all this. If you sat through this whole hour, I appreciate you. Remember, support this ministry on Patreon if you would like to. If not, appreciate your prayers. 
Um, contact me by email or you can call me if you want to share your thoughts with me or whatnot. We could definitely chop it up about all this. Um, this will probably be the last of the Martin Luther King one. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Nathan said I must have drunk a Red Bull tonight. <laughs> I got some energy, man. And so, <laughs> so yeah, it's like, so please, you know, um, call me, talk to me. We could talk about it and whatnot. This will be the last um, one I do on Martin Luther King because I want to move on to Martin Luther. Uh, we're going to deal with his, the claim of his anti-Semitism. And we're going to look at um, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards in the weeks coming forward. And so um, be looking out for that. I want to be fair across the board, across with everybody. So if you have links, if you have articles that you want me to look at concerning those guys, please send them to me. I want to look through them. We want to be fair with everybody. Because you know, this, this hasn't been a, uh, a Martin Luther King roasting session. You know, I just want to honor the truth because that's what we do. We distribute the truth that the doctor prescribes. All right? So uh, with that being said, this world is full of errors. But the only thing the doctor does prescribe is truth. And always in its context. Grace and peace. Prescribe truth, we giving you what the doctor ordered. Jamal Bandy, apologist, the Lord servant. We undeserving, but Christ changed our mind frame. In a world full of errors, the only thing the doctor prescribes is truth.